0: Welcome. I'm Uri.
1: And I'm Rifki, And you're listening to Talk to Tachas, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So this week, uh, we have a very special episode. We're going to be speaking to Laser Berman, another repeat guest who was on the show talking about international politics. He's a reporter for Times of Israel, and he's actually currently on a train on his way into Ukraine. So we are very lucky that we got a chance to talk to him right now.
0: We are here with Laser Berman, diplomatic correspondent for The Times of Israel, a previous guest on Talking Tachlis, Talk and he is right now on his way into Ukraine. Um, Laser, uh thank you so much for doing this interview with us. Thank you for having me, Ori. So can you please tell us like, exactly where you are, what you're doing there, and what you're seeing?
2: Sure. So I arrived on Monday into Warsaw. Um, I spoke to uh, the chief rabbi of Poland, spoke to some other people about the efforts that the Polish Jewish community is, do- is doing to prepare themselves to absorb possibly hundreds of Jewish refugees. Um, then I headed down to uh, by train to Krakow and there in the train station, actually in the central train station, it was very apparent that this was a place where refugees were arriving and you saw all sorts of organizations, municipal a uh, government um, receiving refugees who are getting off trains and, you know, giving them a place to sleep for the night, medical assistance, and then free rides to wherever they're going. So that's when it really started to look like a real refugee situation. had yeah. just, you know, kind of, you know, kids all over the place and parents holding bags of, of goods. And even I spoke to a few Ukrainian men who had kind of dropped off their families and then were going back to fight. Wow. From there, I headed to um, a city called... Um, I'm going to get it wrong, but uh, on the uh, border, which is close to the border crossing where um, a lot of uh, Ukrainians are coming across. I stayed in the hotel, same hotel that the Israeli ambassador to Ukraine and his team are. And they have a a situation room there where they are dealing with the Israelis who are caught up in those lines and they're trying to help them get through. Um, And now I am uh, on a train. I'm going from Poland uh, to Lvov. So I'm going into Ukraine, and that's where I'll spend the rest of the week, and who knows how long after that. But I assume I'll be there uh, for Shabbat as well.
0: Wow. And what is your plan once you get there? What What are you going to be doing? That's a good
2: question. <laughs> so now I don't have much. I'm trying to Let's get in touch with the local Jewish community. Uh-huh. Yeah, I figure that'll be a, a, both a, a good connection to have, and the, you know, the Chabad and, and some of the other Jews uh, there, and it'll also lead to some interesting stories. I have a young woman who's a fixer on the ground, so she... Will drive me. She'll be my translator as well. Um, and she's Ukrainian. Um, and tonight, hopefully, I'll have an interview probably on the train uh, by phone with a senior advisor to uh, the Ukrainian government. So I can talk mm. about what they're seeing as well. Um, but that's not guaranteed yet. So I don't want to get mm. too far ahead of myself. But I'm, I'm on this train, I'm working. Um, And then, you know, these things are very fluid, so I don't even know what Lvov is going to be like in a couple of days, Mm -hmm. but I will be there and and we'll try to bring the story to my readers and as many people as I can.
1: So it might be too soon for you to even know, but... In Lvov, at least, like, oh, let's say, you know, so we have like the East and the West. I I don't even would love for you to kind of like, you know, dig into this a little bit. But what does day to day life look like for the people right now, the people who are, you know, on the edge of Poland and trying to get in there or the people, you know, all the way in the East? What, What is like the whole country just kind of shut down or is in some ways and in some places kind of business as usual? Like, like, what does it look like for people on the ground?
2: Sure. So again, like you said, I haven't been there yet. So this is just what I've heard from people I'm speaking to. This train is again people going back into Lvov. So it was packed. They were. I was told there was 5,000 Ukrainians on the train coming into Poland, and then on the way back they pack it up with humanitarian goods. I spoke to a man named a Ukrainian man named Igor who's in Poland, organizing all that humanitarian uh, aid. He works for the Ukrainian train line, and so he's he's scheduling all this. And then I don't know a few dozen people are going back into uh, Ukraine, mostly Ukrainians. Um, some of them are, again, men who are called up by their reserve units going to fight. And, you know, their message was uh, was glory to Ukraine. That's that's what people are, are yelling here in, in the street. And it seems like a, a pretty uh, powerful rallying cry amongst the crowd here. So in Lvov, I've been told that about 90 percent of the restaurants are closed, but you can definitely find some. Most of the stores are shut. Hotels are open. Um, there is a curfew from 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. So I'm going to arrive after the curfew, but I'll just head straight for the hotel and hope for the best. Um, mm-hmm. But cities like Kiev, of course, which are under assault, and certainly Kharkiv in the east, are you know mm-hmm. that's taking shelling. People I spoke to from Kharkiv, you know, saw Russian soldiers in their neighborhoods, and that's when they decided to get up and leave and and uh, you know become refugees. So uh, yeah. each city is different, but the further east you go. The further north you go, then you get closer to the front. Uh, again, Lvov is uh, pretty far west, so I'm hoping it stays far from the action. But uh, people I've spoken to have said they, they've heard booms in the distance.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So far, uh, it hasn't. Been, there hasn't been fighting in the city, thank God.
0: Wow. Wow. so Lazar, I want to ask you some some just broader questions, you know, as somebody who's like really been looking into this. um, There's just so much that doesn't make sense, I think, to a lot of people. A lot of the coverage that we're seeing is just very simplistic of Putin is the aggressor. He's the terrible, horrible leader of Russia who's just aggressing going into um, Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, especially the Ukrainian president, are defending themselves and they're the heroes. And that may be true, but it doesn't really explain why this is happening and what the perceptions are in Russia, in Ukraine. Do you have a feel for what are Putin's goals? And also, is it just him? Or what do the Russian people think about this attack?
2: Sure. So let's start with his goals. Um, you know, again, people try to analyze Putin himself, because he's such a driving force here. I think he surprised um, the world. I think most of the world's, even the entire world didn't even believe that, there, that he would initiate an actual Pretty conventional war in Europe, you know. Uh, you know, in, in this day and age, right? Um, so, so that was surprising, even for him. But let's not forget, he is someone who looks back at the Soviet Union as kind of the glory days um, of Russia, mm-hmm. and the fact that it fell apart was of some pain to him and people um, in his kind of, you know, in, in his world. Former former KGB agent. Um, we see how threatened Russia actually does feel by NATO. So uh, when NATO moved closer and closer to Russia's borders and started incorporating countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, that was uh, something that really alarmed people like Putin. So he you know, he was willing to go to war with Georgia in 2008. Um, and this is, seems something similar to what he did in 2014 with Ukraine when uh, the pro-Russian government was overthrown by the people and, and a very clear mm-hmm. pro-Western uh, orientation Orientated government took over in the country. But I must say that uh, his uh, aggression toward Ukraine, his attempts to retake control of the country, have driven Ukrainians further into the arms of the West. So Mm -hmm. if in 2014, only about 15 percent of the country was for joining the EU and joining NATO, now that's well over 50 percent before the invasion. Since the invasion, I'm sure it's it's climbing up to 70, 80 percent and um, you know they claim you know in my conversations with israel's excuse me russia's ambassador to israel you know the claim is that they're trying to denazify ukraine that ukraine has been carrying out uh, a genocide against russian speakers within the country and, and it's a defensive war you know obviously this is pretty bad uh pretty uh, propaganda that's pretty transparent
0: is there any validity to anything along those lines uh,
2: you know it, let's let's say we want to be as charitable as possible with the russian position for some reason um, there are certainly elements of uh, neo-Nazism, and there are some neo-Nazi movements within the country. Mm-hmm. Is that a driving force in a country where you have a president who's Jewish, right. you had a prime minister who's Jewish at the same time? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, th- no, it's 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 really not. Yeah. Um, even his his claims about Ru- native Russian speakers is not true because I speak to plenty of Russian speakers. That are from the east, and they say, "No, we're defending our country against against Putin." So, there are certainly, um, you know, in some parts, especially in Crimea, people that speak Russian and see themselves as Russians. But the idea that there's this foreign-dominated government in Kiev who who he has to protect Ukraine from is is absolutely uh, ridiculous. And this certainly is not the way to go about, you know, defend, de- solve in any sort of situation. Borders are there for a reason. There's no international order without respected borders. And, um, you know, and, and to, to try to redraw borders through through brute force is certainly something that that is not a way that the international system can work in any
0: way. And what about mm-hmm. the Russian people?
2: So I'm sure you saw that there was several thousand brave Russians in some major cities who, you know, at, at great risk to themselves, uh, very openly protested it. Mm-hmm. But it seems like polls, it seems like, you know, at least half probably the majority of Russians are you know, getting behind the president. Uh, you know, Russians are a proud people, and when your country goes to war, you get behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, again, that depends on how this war goes. If if it indeed they get bogged down and there's a lot of casualties, Russians are much more sensitive to casualties than Westerners realize, um, and I think that will become a factor. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, Putin's putting a lot on the line here, p- perhaps his his political future, um, and maybe even his life in in this gamble. Mm-hmm. This is you know this is a gamble for everything. Wow.
1: So, laser, one of the things you mentioned was just uh, you uh, spoke with, was it the Israeli ambassador? Who, who did you speak with?
2: I or spoke had... to, I've spoken multiple times. I was with him last night, uh, Israel's ambassador to Ukraine, who is currently mm-hmm. in Poland with his whole staff, mm-hmm. uh, Mikhail Brodsky, who's uh, He's actually originally from St. Petersburg. So, you know, he grew up uh, initially in Russia. Wow. Um, but, you know, on his Facebook profile, he put the Ukrainian flag. But he's, he's really a... Uh, professional uh, diplomat he, he really is a uh, uh-huh. a wonderful uh, asset to the country and he was telling me about his experiences at the border crossing where he says it's turning very quickly into a real humanitarian crisis where you have you know weights of 20 kilometers 80 hours uh people are angry people are tense it starts to be dangerous mm-hmm. um, and he even was really sad he says some of the israelis that he helps get across start to attack not physically, but verbally, they attack the the Israeli diplomats and say, "Why didn't you rescue us? Where were you? Why did we have to pay for flights?" Which is, you know, it's awful. And he says, "These are the very people that three weeks ago I was telling to to leave the country." They had they a chance to leave then,
0: right? Yeah,
2: and they laughed in his face and said, "You know, you're overreacting. Leave us alone." And now they want, you know, they want him to perform miracles. So you could tell there was some real anger when he was talking to me. Well, wow.
1: right. So uh, I'm. One of the things that I feel like we're all hearing different things and about, you know, the relationship between Israel and Ukraine and Russia, like Israel doesn't, you know, want to pick a side. Bennett's saying one thing, Lapid saying another thing. Then they're talking about trying to uh, rescue all the Jews. But then even like Natan Sharansky saying, no, let the Jews stay. What does it look like? And I feel like I'm hearing a lot of different things. Like I'm love I would love for just a sense of clarity. Like has Israel kind of thrown in its lot with, like, one group or another? Like, what what is, what is the relationship like with Israel? How does Israel fit in?
2: Sure, that, that's a wonderful question. That's a question that you could kind of see as this thing was uh, heating up and, and moving toward an open conflict that Israel was going to be in an uncomfortable position. Let's start with the basics. Israel's best friend is the United States. The special relationship, deep, broad, and, and really every category. And Israel aligns itself with the West at the same time. Israel is the one Western country that has good relations with Russia, that Russia does not see as an adversary, and Israel doesn't see Russia as an adversary. Add to that the fact that Russia has a significant military presence and is a dominant force just over the northern border in Syria, and if Israel wants to continue what it calls its Mabam campaign, its campaign between wars to prevent Iran's entrenchment On Israel's northern border, uh, then it needs to coordinate with Russia. And Russia can really make that difficult for Israel if it wants to. So, Israel is what Israeli officials are saying is basically we have a moral obligation to make sure we can protect our citizens first. And Mm -hmm. if that means our statements publicly are not going to be as strident as other countries, well, you know what? Our our citizens come first. Now, Mm -hmm. that is a very legitimate position, but I could see people taking other positions. Um, I will say that Ukraine certainly wants more out of Israel, and they make that very clear in conversations. They, I would say in December, no, I guess it was January, um, Is Ukraine's ambassador in Israel said basically that Ukraine was ready to recognize Jerusalem as the capital and move a diplomatic office there hmm. if Israel significantly up, upgraded its defense relationship. Um, Israel has prevented Israeli arms from even being sold through Baltic countries to Ukraine so it, it is very cognizant of the fact that it does not want to upset russia and i want to just add one more thing it's not necessarily bad for russia uh or ukraine that israel is kind of staying out of it because at some point as we've heard in the news they're going to need to get out of this through negotiations and it's pretty hard to find a reasonable place that both sides will be feel comfortable and so if jerusalem is available as, as a neutral ground, that's good for both sides, right? That gives hmm. Russia an out at some point when it wants one. and Ukraine obviously wants to end this today uh, by negotiation. So uh, that's not necessarily the worst thing for Ukraine either.
0: that could be very interesting if Israel is the mediator that would be a, a huge
2: diplomatic coup. It'd probably I can't even ima- remember something right. as big that that uh, Israel puts an end to the to this war in wow. the in the heart of Europe, yeah.
1: yeah, what I read, and maybe this is totally incorrect was that, Ukraine asked Israel and then two days later, Israel agreed and asked Russia and Russia rejected it and that it's kind of on hold for now. But that was already, I think, yesterday and things change all the time. You know,
2: they do. Uh, The sense I get from uh, the last time I spoke to Russia's ambassador uh, to Israel is that, yeah, that the conversation was there. Russia appreciates it. Russia understands Israel's position. But for now, uh, the answer is no, uh, because Russia says they're determined to carry this operation through to the end, so they aren't ready
1: uh,
2: to engage in talks. But at some point, how does this end? It either ends with Ukraine utterly giving up, which they don't seem they're about to do, or some sort of negotiated process. As the 2014 uh, conflict uh, you know, came to some sort of ceasefire through the Minsk agreements, which was a negotiated process.
0: Liza, I want to ask you, there's still, I mean, there's still a lot that I'm trying to wrap my head around. I think a lot of people um, weren't expecting so much of this and trying to understand it. Um, I think a lot of people, at least in the West, expected Ukraine to either not put up any fight or at least not much of a fight. And Russia, with its much, much larger army, would just take over the country. And that clearly has not happened. And I think the whole world has been shocked by the, I guess, bravery and the resilience of the Ukrainian army and people. I'm just trying to understand if russia did or does take over ukraine what will that mean for the country of ukraine i assume zelensky will lose his job but what about the the people of ukraine will life continue as usual is something gonna change what how do you foresee that
2: sure so you know i i didn't think your sentence about zelensky was going to end with the word job I was well hopefully not ahead. his
0: life in any situation but i mean that's obviously a possibility and also
2: that certainly is that certainly is um I think the goal for Russia is to have Ukraine continue to function as a, uh, you know, as an independent country, but that Russia basically has a veto power over internal politics. So who, you know, gets elected to as president, prime minister, and it's foreign policy, meaning that it cannot join NATO and it cannot join the EU. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, a Ukraine fully in Russia's sphere uh, is the goal and a buffer state between NATO and and Russia. So that is kind of serving the role that Belarus plays as well. Um, let's not forget that Ukraine, though, it's a pretty poor country. It has some very significant natural resources, very fertile country, um, major exporter of wheat and other grains, um, you know, other natural resources, fossil fuels. So um, it is a valuable prize. And uh, I think that the goal is that Russia will just have it within its sphere and will, have, uh, will be able to keep it from moving closer to the West in, in in any way at all.
0: Right. It's just so interesting, you know, not knowing that much about the region, but seeing how many Ukrainians are just risking their lives to, to defend their country when a takeover would not, it's not like they're going to be put in concentration camps, right? Like Russia wants them to like them. You know, they want things to continue as normal, as you said. So how do you understand this? Were people, was this, is this a surprise to people in the region that Ukrainians are putting up such a fight?
2: I think it's really a surprise to Russians and to Putin himself because their propaganda was always centered around the idea that Ukraine isn't really a real country. Right. Um, you know, some significant uh, percentage of the people are native Russian speakers and are Russians at heart and, and would like to see uh, Russian dominance against these uh, these racist Ukrainian ultranationalists. And I think they kind of believed that, and they thought it would be a cakewalk, and you know, some pressure from you know on the borders would would cause the Ukrainian army to collapse and Zelensky to run away. That obviously hasn't happened. And let's let's not forget, Zelensky himself is a native Russian Russian speaker. He's from an area that Putin would consider you know a very friendly uh, area to the idea of of Russian domination. And here he is, and he's just I guess the right man at the right time. Someone who was was a comic, who was you know kind of a slapstick comedian jewish and here he is uh inspiring not only his people but the world to continue fighting and you know i i meet just in poland over the last couple of days again and again i meet ukrainian men who are dropping off their families or have head or heading into ukraine from Mm -hmm. you know countries like germany which is you know seems like a wonderful place to live to go fight and you know it's, it's a real sense that we are defending our country and you hear the cries, again, of slavo Ukraina. I guess that's how you say it, glory to Ukraine, you know, mm. just went outside this train station. If you yell it, everyone yells back, and, <laughs> and it's, it's resigning. Wow. So wow. This, this not only reflects the real nationalism in Ukraine, but is obviously creating even more.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Belarus, yeah. which is obviously a totally separate country, but I was actually in Belarus about ten years ago. I went for for Pesach, and the Jews that I spoke to there were all I, I was just curious. We talked about the Cold War, we talked about America and Russia. They were all super pro Russia, super pro Putin. I mean, I know it's a different situation, but I I would have thought maybe Ukraine would have been similar.
2: I think there are um I haven't Spoken at great extent to uh, to Russians all around the country. I was in Kiev a couple of weeks ago, and they were as pro-Ukrainian as anyone else. But the sense I get is that, especially some of the older uh, generation, kind of sees uh, a natural kinship.
0: Right, these Russia are older people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you know, there was I didn't speak to him, but I was speaking to a Jewish woman who was telling me that she spoke to the man. A guy who was hes in his 90s, he had you know, his medals on, he was crying to her, and he's saying, I want to die, I don't want to live anymore. Why? Because he cannot even conceive of a time when Russia would attack Ukraine, because he sees Russia and Ukraine like the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just so painful to him to see that, because don't forget, the World War II, which was the defining event you know, of of. You can still see it, its its deep uh, resonance in Russia today. That's why they're always talking about defending against the Nazis. And mm-hmm. So when you had tens of millions of Russians die, um, and and Ukrainians and Belarusians fought on, you know, in the Red Army and fought together against the Nazis, you know, that 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 really did something. And so that generation, uh, especially Jews, you know, know that who defeated the Nazis really it was uh, it was the Red Army. So right. that certainly, yeah, mm-hmm. it certainly. Uh, plays into it. There's no question, and and Russia, you know, has always presented itself as a multi-ethnic uh, country, and Soviet Union did that as well. You know, they they during the Cold War they would point at uh, cr- decrepit American uh, racism, Jim Crow things like that, and say, look, here in Soviet Union, it doesn't matter what race you are, because we're all brothers and we're all comrades. Mm-hmm. So that, that's certainly something that that's in their messaging and in their propaganda. Um, but certainly for the younger generation of Ukrainian Jews, that, uh, is not very resonant. You know, they seem to be as nationalist as anyone else. And, uh, many are, you know, there's many active young Jewish activists who say they don't want to leave. They don't want to go to Israel, Germany, or the United States. They want to stay, build Ukraine and build Ukraine's Jewish community. Mm.
1: Laser, I know that you're in the middle of a million things and I so appreciate the time that you're giving to, to talk to us. I had one more question. Maybe this question is even too big, but uh, I'm wondering uh, right now, and it's barely gotten any press, especially because of everything going on right now. I think the I, the Iran talks are continuing in Vienna, right? They're picking up again. Who even knows what round the, these talks are? How does Iran fit into this, or does it not at all? Is it completely unrelated?
2: Thank you for bringing that up, because you know that's much more uh, relevant to Israel's national security. And uh, you know, I literally have not thought about that all day, but <laughs> it's something I've you know I've been writing about over the past mm-hmm. weeks. Yeah. So this this round of talks. Uh, picked up basically in November and it's had some breaks for you know the holidays. But this is supposed to be the final leg. And uh, the expectation is that there will be a shorter and weaker deal. Uh, there's going to be none of this longer and stronger that people are talking about. You're not going to have a deal that, 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 uh, that has anything to do with Iran's uh, proxy and militias in the region, not with its ballistic missile program. It's going to be a very narrow deal that deals with its nuclear program. Uh, the expectation is that that deal will be made, and, and and the sides are almost there. Um, now, how does it tie into this into the Russia um, invasion of Ukraine? It's it's a good question. Uh, Michael Oren, I spoke to. He was the former former ambassador to the United States, uh, very well known uh, individual. I'm sure everyone's you know heard of him, read his books, met him he thinks that Russia saw U.S. posture in Vienna, the fact that they were uh, willing to remove sanctions, that they were not standing by allies, and that emboldened Russia, you know, because he, he said, you know, that's kind of the same pattern that that the United States hmm. is, is, is putting forth uh, in Europe. And, um, you know, there, there, I think there, there's certainly something to that. So, um, you know, whether there's a direct... Connection, not necessarily, but I think certainly elements of, you know, of U.S. weakness, U.S. detachment, are there, and I think there's an understanding that America is focused elsewhere and it doesn't want to be in the Middle East and it wants to put this Ukraine thing in a box. Uh, excuse me, this uh, Iran nuclear program in a box. So there, I think that there could be impetus to even close it even quicker to say we got bigger problems in Europe right now. Let's just sign this thing. I don't want to think about the nuclear thing anymore um but i was also speaking actually an opportunity for the united states to um to restore uh, its trust among its allies to reassure them and to show that it uh it actually you know is willing to to fight for what is right and to push uh iran for a much tougher deal so uh you know i wouldn't hold my hold my breath on that but there certainly is an opportunity here for the united states
0: so laser as you're heading on this train now into ukraine What do you foresee happening in the coming hours and days with this war? Do you see things escalating? I'm
2: just guessing as much as anyone else. But, yeah, I think uh, the the Russian Air Force has curiously, and I don't know why, has really not come into play yet. Um, So I think that is uh, something uh, that Putin will employ at some point, especially if he gets frustrated on the ground. Um, And there's also a time limit to this thing. You know, as it gets warmer, the Ukrainian mud... Will start to to uh, come into play, and will start to limit Russia's mobility. And if they if they're bogged down outside of major cities, uh, you know, without too much ability to move off of roads, that, that would be a, a very dangerous position to be in. So I do foresee some escalation in the coming days. Uh, again, hopefully, it's not where I am.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, Lazar, we really appreciate you speaking to us, and we are, we'll be praying for your safety. We hope you stay safe and uh, get some good reporting. We will be following you at Times of Israel. And uh, thank you so much, and safe travels.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to the both of you, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon.
1: Okay, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much to Laser for joining us. Uh, there are obviously a lot of unknowns right now, and it's pretty scary for all of us. It's incredible what Lazer is doing, going in and actually being able to report from the ground there. And it really means a lot that we were able to, to talk with him for a few minutes. And, of course, the conversation, as always, does not end with us, does not end with Lazer, with Uri, and with me. It is with all of you. So please, please join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Tachas Podcast, and shoot us an email, Podcast at gmail.com.
0: Thanks as always to Drive In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Tachlas. Bye, everyone. Zagazun.